Welcome to Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Sharon has a passion for Scripture that will motivate and challenge you to immerse yourself in God's Word and apply His message to your everyday life. Visit SeekingTruth.net to learn more about bringing Seeking Truth to your parish or to become an online learner. Today, it's part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 18. And now, Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. Hi, everybody. Welcome. We're doing John chapter 18 tonight. I'm so glad you're here. If you recall, we had the high priestly prayer last week where Jesus prayed his final prayer to the Father after the farewell discourse, and he wants to glorify the Father through his completed work. And he prays with such confidence, that prayer, because he knows the Father's going to hear him, and he knows he has every intention to go through with the plan that was from the foundation before the beginning of the world. He also prays for unity for all disciples and for all believers. So he prayed for us that night. If you're a believer, he prayed for you that night. And at the end of his work, the way he will glorify the Father is to sit down at his right hand. And what's he going to sit on? The mercy seat. The mercy seat that's in the throne room of heaven. And when he showed Moses the shadow of it on earth, it was the top of the Ark of the Covenant. Well, his mother Mary will be the Ark, and he will be the top covering and all the contents inside the Ark. Ark, but he will be the final priest, the final blood of atonement for all, forever. And there's that mercy seat, and he will sit down. He is the new mercy seat. It's just such a beautiful completion of what he said to Moses when he had him hammer out that Ark of the Covenant. He said, put the mercy seat on top, and that's where I'm going to meet you. There I will meet you above the Ark on the mercy seat. There is where where he wants to meet us. And there is where he's going to get us back to the Father because he did this work perfectly. And then what did he do? He sat down. And what do you do at the end of the day when your work is done? You sit down. And it says in Hebrews 1.3 that Jesus is the reflection of God's glory, the exact imprint of God's very being. He sustains all things by his powerful word. And when he had made purification for sins, he sat down down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Now tonight we're told that Jesus, knowing all that was to happen to him, came forward to ask them, whom are you looking for? Just think of that. Jesus knew all things that were going to happen to him. He's heading into this final week of his life, this last leg of the journey, this departure, this exodus, and he knows everything that's going to happen to him. And the reason that's important is because he has full knowledge and will give full consent to the Father's will. This is not random. This is not happenstance. This is in full freedom. And Jesus also gave Judas full freedom. And everyone in here has full freedom, and it's called a free will. And that's what love is. Without it, there's no real love. Then you're just a robot. You have to have free will. So Judas also had full freedom. And Paul tells us it's for freedom that Christ set us free. Stand firm, therefore. Do not submit to a yoke of slavery. This is in freedom. Christians, you were called to freedom, brothers and sisters. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for self-indulgence. That's what Judas did. He used his freedom for self-indulgence because he liked the money bag. John told us he was a thief and he liked to steal from it. He had that capital sin, that deadly sin of 
greed. So he used his freedom for his own self-indulgence instead of Jesus who used his freedom through love to become slaves to one another. Jesus became a slave for every single one of us in here by love and freedom. So through love and freedom, we want to become servants to one another. And then we too can sit down like he sat down at the father's right hand in glory. Now listen to what he prayed for his own apostles. As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I sanctify myself so that they may also be sanctified in truth. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word. So he's praying for us there. We're going to believe because of their word. We are an apostolic church. That's one of the four markers of the Catholic faith. We are one holy Catholic and apostolic. So we're built on the words of the apostles. And so that's what he's praying right here, that we would believe because of their words. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one. He wants Christian unity. He wants one bride. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given them so that they may be one as we are one, Father. I and them, you and me, that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. That means we're going to be a brotherhood, a sisterhood, all with the same father. That's unity. We all have the same father, God. Father, I desire that those also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory, which you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, God had this plan. And he loved each of us into existence. Righteous Father, the world does not know you, but I know you. And these know that you have sent me. I made your name known to them, and I will make it known. Why? So that the love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. He wants to be in us. The love which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. Now that's what Eucharist is. When we eat him, body, blood, soul, and divinity, he is in us. That's pretty intimate. You can't get much closer than that. And that's what he prayed for that night, that he would be in us, through him, with him, in him, in the unity. He wants unity in the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. All glory and honor are yours who, Almighty Father, I'm doing this to glorify you forever and ever. Amen. So that was the hour of glorification of the Father and it's still happening every hour around the clock somewhere in another tribe, another nation, in another country. But the Mass takes how long? About an hour. The hour of glorification is repeated and repeated and repeated and repeated and remembered and remembered. But it's once for all. It's an unbloodied sacrifice of the glorification of the Father by the perfect eternal high priest Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. So now we go to 18. And Jesus had spoken these words of this prayer. And he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. 
Now, that Kidron Valley is a very, very important place in Scripture. And they say that the Holy Land is like a fifth gospel because just the presence of the land teaches you so much. In the Bible, the Kidron Valley is called the Valley of Jehoshaphat, the Valley of Judgment, the Valley of Decision. Any of those. They're all the same. The Kidron Valley is the valley on the eastern side of the old city of Jerusalem, and it separates the Temple Mount from the Mount of Olives. And it goes between the city of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives, the Kidron Valley. So Jesus and 11 disciples go. Judas is no longer with them. These 11 go across the Kidron Valley to a place where there was a garden. We remember in John 11 that Judas... Jesus said, you know, giving him every chance, he says, the one I dip this bread in and give it to them, that's the one who's going to betray me. One of you is going to betray me. And he dips the bread, give the bread to Judas, and Judas receives that piece of bread and immediately goes out into what? The dark of night. And he is in real spiritual darkness. Satan has entered him. He has allowed Satan to enter him. And he's made that choice in full freedom. He has a free will. As many times as Jesus warned him that someone's going to betray me, he still did it. So they go into the Garden of Gethsemane, which is called the Garden of the Olive Press. And there are many olive trees there to this day. Some of them thousands, hundreds, hundreds, hundreds of years old olive trees in the Kidron Valley. It's a beautiful place. Jesus and his disciples used to meet there often to pray. But Jerusalem at this time was an incredibly beautiful city because King Herod the Great had reigned for 33 years. Interesting number. And he transformed the city of Jerusalem like no other ruler since King Solomon had done. So no visitor seeing Jerusalem for the first time could fail to be impressed by the splendor of the beauty of the city. And it was a very long, difficult ascent from Jericho to the holy city. And when you got to the Mount of Olives, you could catch sight of the city, and it was a view like nowhere else in the entire world. Beautiful. It was called the perfection of beauty. And in the words of lamentation, the joy of all the world, Jerusalem. The temple, Herod's great temple, stood above the old city of David on a gigantic white stone platform that would gleam in the sun. And the view from the Mount of Olives was dominated by the gleaming gold embellished temple, which was located in the most holy spot in the Jewish world and really in the entire world, because this is where God revealed himself. The Jews feel this is the navel of creation right here at this spot. It was the Lord's earthly dwelling place where he mediated from his throne. He had given them ceremonies and rituals to perform that would foreshadow the coming of his son, the Messiah. Now, the rabbis said, whoever has not seen Jerusalem in its splendor has never seen a fine city. But that city got utterly destroyed in 70 AD by the Romans, as we know, just obliterated, burnt to the ground. And not only the temple, but the entire city was burnt. And we know from our study of Revelation that that happened the same day as the first temple was destroyed on the ninth of Av. This second temple was destroyed on the ninth of Av in the Jewish calendar. It would be our month of August. But for these things, Jesus said, you're going to see the day will come when not one stone's going to be left upon another stone. All are going to be thrown down. 
Well, if you go to Jerusalem, you'll see all these original temple stones. That's all that's left of Herod's great temple, these stones that have been thrown down, just as Jesus said they would be. Jesus said they will crush you to the ground, you and your children within you. They will not leave you within, not one stone upon another, because you did not recognize the time of your visitation from God. God, in the person of Jesus, the face of the Father's mercy, came and visited you, and you didn't recognize him. You said he's a blasphemer. You said kill him. That's all that's left. Now, if we go to the top of the southeast corner of the Temple Mount, and that wall is still there, just the wall, not the temple, but the wall remains, and this is looking down to the Kidron Valley from the southeast corner of the Temple Mount Wall. And this would have been the highest place in the city of Jerusalem. Solomon's portico, Solomon's porch was built here. And Josephus, the historian, describes the view from the rooftop of Solomon's portico, saying that it was a structure more noteworthy than any structure under the sun. The height of the portico was so great, if anyone looked down from its rooftop, he would become dizzy and his vision would be unable to reach the end of a measureless depth. Now, that's the highest spot, the top of the southeast corner of the Temple Mount. It overlooks the Kidron Valley, and that is the spot where Satan took Jesus when he wanted to tempt him in that temptation when he takes him to the pinnacle of the temple and says, if you're the son of God, throw yourself down from here. In Luke, it says that Satan took him to the highest point of the temple, and that would be looking right down to the Kidron Valley right at the very top of that corner and standing down and looking down into the Kidron Valley. Now, it's a lot deeper back then than it is today because 2,000 years of debris and rubble and trash has blown into this area. But when you look down into the Kidron Valley, you will see some 2,000-year-old tombs that survived the 70 AD obliteration of Rome. One of the thing you will see is Absalom's pillar or Absalom's monument. And I'm telling you about these things because this is all happening tonight in this location. This is where Jesus spent the last few days of his life. David had something happen here to him. David is crying out in prayer, crying. And he said, oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom. Oh, would I have died instead of you? Oh, Absalom, my son, Absalom. It's his guttural plea because one of his beloved sons has died. And this is Absalom's pillar right at this location. Now, it tells us in 2 Samuel that Absalom in his lifetime had set up for himself a pillar in the king's valley. And do you recall the King's Valley anywhere in scripture? Because someone else was in this same location in the King's Valley. And it was back in Genesis 14, and it's the exact spot where Melchizedek blessed Abram in King's Valley. So that's an important connection. Absalom has set up a pillar for himself in King's Valley, and he said, I have no son to keep my name and my remembrance, so he called that pillar by his own name. It is called Absalom's Monument to this day. And you can go see it there. And it's very distinctive because that conical top looks kind of like, uh, they call it the Pharaoh's hat sometimes. But you'll, that's a good landmark when you're in this area. You can always look for the monument of Absalom. It existed in the days of Josephus. He writes about it in his antiquities. But for centuries, it was customary for Jews, Christians, and Muslims who passed by it to throw stones, to throw rocks at this monument of Absalom. 
and you wonder why. Even residents of Jerusalem would bring their unruly children to the site to teach them what became of a rebellious son. John will be visiting it this summer. That's my son, John, is up there. Uh, We won't throw rocks at it. (laughs) But uh, it's based on that proverb that says, a foolish son is grief to his father. That's not John. But the story, do you know the story of King David's beloved son, Absalom? Because it is a betrayal that happened to in this very location. It's a betrayal like we're talking about tonight. David had a daughter named Tamar. Tamar's half-brother's name was Amnon. Amnon lusted for his sister, and she would not yield, and so he raped her. Tamar's full brother, Absalom, learned of this horrible deed, and he was outraged, and he expected his father to avenge this horrible act, but David did nothing. David was passive. David did nothing. And it might have been because of his own weakness with sexual sin. You know, he, he had an affair with Bathsheba, killed her husband. I mean, he had a problem with lust, and, and how can he point the finger at his sons when he himself had the same sin? So that's something for us to be aware of. Uh, but Absalom wouldn't be denied justice for his sister, and so he took matters into his own hands. If his father wouldn't discipline it, he would. And he commanded his servants to watch Amnon. And when his heart is merry with wine, he said, get him drunk. And then I want you to kill him, strike him and kill him. And it will be at my order. So the servants did as commanded and the death of Anon. And this was a great loss. It was a great disgrace to the house of David, the king of Israel, the greatest king of all time. This son assassinated the other son. And so Absalom is forced to run for asylum to Jordan, and he will be gone for three years. And when he returns to Jerusalem, he is not permitted back into his father's presence for another two years. He's not allowed into the palace of David. And so he begins to grow bitter and he starts to make up a plan to undermine and usurp his father's throne. And so Absalom gets a strong military force together and declares himself to be the new king of Israel. And David has to flee from the capital city of Jerusalem. And guess where he flees? Right through the Kidron Valley where Jesus is tonight. David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping all the while covering his head with other people, weeping, weeping, weeping for his son and what was about to happen. It will be a mortal combat with his son and David. And that is something no father wants. And so he's actually, uh, they make it to the forest of Ephraim and David tells his men, for my sake, please do be gentle with, with my son Absalom. But they ignored his command. Absalom is riding through the dense forest. His head gets caught in the boughs of a great oak tree. His hair, his long hair gets caught in the branches and the mule keeps running out from under him. And so he's hanging in this tree by his hair. And some of the soldiers came upon the young man and speared him three times. So that is how he was killed. He helplessly hung there. He had betrayed his own father. And he's hanging from a tree. Okay, does that sound familiar? David hears of the death of his beloved son. And he makes that plaintive guttural cry oh my son Absalom he's crying and weeping and he had to go right through that Kidron valley during this rebellion and his son that he loves so much has betrayed him and he's weeping and his son is hanging from a tree now we have this son of David tonight and he's in the same Kidron valley 
and he knows everything that's going to happen and he knows that one of his very own is going to betray him, one that he loves, one that he's chosen. And he says, the hour is at hand, Father, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. And he is grieved and he is agitated. And he said to Peter, James, and John, I am deeply grieved, even to the point of death. Remain here, stay awake with me. And in his anguish, he prays more earnestly. In Luke's version, his sweat becomes like drops of blood falling to the ground. He knows what he has to face. It's right ahead. It's right now. And he asked the father in Matthew 26, could this just pass? Could, could, could I, I just not drink this? But if you really want me to, father, your will be done. And of course, we know that was the plan from before the foundation of time, and he knows it, and he prays through it, and he will give full consent with full knowledge in full freedom, because he loves the Father. He knows it's time. Jesus said, get up, let's get going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And so it's a valley of judgment. It's a valley of decision. And King David wept in the same valley of decision. The passive father who struggled with lust is betrayed by his own. And now Jesus is, is going through a similar thing. So the pillar of Absalom is there. The tomb of Zechariah is there. Zechariah's tomb also survived 70 AD. They both stand there today, along with many other Jewish graves. It's the largest Jewish graveyard in the world. All those are graves. All those are whitewashed tombs. Over 70,000 tombs from all different periods in history. Very famous Jewish figures, rabbis. It started over 3,000 years ago in the the first temple period to build tombs here, and it is the most visited spot in all of Jerusalem, inside and outside of the city, and it's the Valley of Judgment. God shall judge. Those are the most expensive graves on the face of the earth. That's the highest price real estate grave you can possibly buy, but those are all the Mount of Olives, the graveyard. Many Jews go to Jerusalem to retire and live out their lives so they can be buried there in this holy ground, in this valley of decision on the west side of the Mount of Olives, and they're really waiting. They want to be there because they're waiting for the appearance of Messiah. And they want to be facing this way because it's just across the Kidron Valley. And according to Jewish tradition, this is where the resurrection of the dead will take place once Messiah appears on the Mount of Olives. So they all want to be there. And there's Absalom's pillar right at the base. Also, there's a Catholic church there called the Church of All Nations or the Basilica of Agony. And it stands near the foot of the Mount of Olives. It's built over the rock where Jesus agonized, where he prayed that hour. And it's a great place to take a holy hour if you visit, uh, especially at night. It's right in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there are two deer on the top. And it's also, those deer are there because David prayed a psalm in this location, longing for God's help and deliverance in his time of distress. And that psalm says, as a deer longs for flowing streams, so my soul longs for you, O God. We see this place as very important in the New Testament as well. Jesus ascended here. The angel, two men, two angels are standing there and they say to the apostles, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up toward heaven? This Jesus who has been taken away, he's been taken up from you into heaven. He will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So he went up there 
And these two angels say he'll be coming back down there. So it's another reason people want to be close to the Mount of Olives when the second coming of Christ comes. Now, in the Old Testament, Joel talks about this location. He says, I'm going to gather. The Lord says, I'll gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and I will enter into judgment with them there. I'll come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. I will sit there to judge multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. He's talking about this location, the valley of decision. And really, each and every single one of us is in a valley of decision. Because we too have to decide, is this real? Was this true? This happened 2,000 years ago. Is this really for us? We have to say, what's this Messiah? We're also in the valley of decision. And he's come to save us, not condemn us. And he's given us his word. And his word is true. And that's why we're studying his word. So that we know it. He'll never lie to us. And that we can decide through his word, is he telling the truth? He says, I've given you the Holy Spirit. He's the spirit of what? Truth. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. (laughs) He is truth, and he wants us to know him in a deep, personal way. So also the prophet Zechariah foresaw Messiah's coming into the world. And he said, on that day, the Lord's feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which lie before Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley. Now, there is the eastern gate of Jerusalem's old city. Above this Mount of Olives, you see the gate. There's two. They're sealed shut now at this time in history. But Zechariah predicted that the Messiah will arrive on the Mount of Olives, and he will enter through the eastern gate. So the eastern gate is really important. The Jews call it the Golden Gate or the Gate of Mercy. And they say that the Shekinah glory will appear here when Messiah comes. The... Arabic name, the Muslim name for these two doors are the gate of repentance and the gate of mercy. Interesting, but that eastern gate was closed by the Muslims in 810 AD. They sealed it shut. It gets reopened in 1102 by the Christian crusaders. It gets walled up again by Saladin after regaining Jerusalem in 1187. And then Ottoman Sultan Suleiman the Magnificent uh, sealed it up again, walled it up in 1541, and it has stayed that way ever since. Now, according to Jewish tradition, and I found this painting, and that's Joachim and Anna, and Anna is telling St. Joachim a secret. Those are Mary's parents. And she's telling him a secret, but this is the Eastern Gate. This is the Mercy Gate. This is where they believe that the Shekinah glory, the divine presence, will come back one day. And she's telling him a secret at that location. Now, you remember, the ark isn't even there in Jerusalem at the time of Jesus, right? Because Jeremiah hid the ark. We always say this. But Jeremiah tells us that that place is going to remain unknown until God gathers his people together again and shows his mercy. Now, anytime the ark was present, we saw the Shekinah glory. That's what led them through the desert. Now, in Christian apocryphal texts, the eastern gate was the scene of the meeting between Mary and her, the parents of Mary after the Annunciation. And her mother had a big secret. And maybe she heard from Elizabeth, her sister, because Mary had spent time. But she is telling her husband that the eastern gate, this gate is going to become a symbol of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ through Mary. 
That was part one of the Gospel of John, chapter 18, on Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran. To learn more about Seeking Truth Bible Studies, visit SeekingTruth.net. Tune in next time for more Seeking Truth with Sharon Doran.